Learn Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. And I'm Michael Lutz. It's episode 14. Hooray. We have... Hooray! We did it! Every episode. The big one celebration. Four. The big one four, as, as you all well know. They're all big, but this is truly the big one four. Um, if this were a child, it could drive. If every episode was a year, is that true? Wait, can a, if, can if, a fourteen-year-old drive? In what context? I guess. Can a fourteen-year-old drive an airplane? Yeah, I think so. Well, there you go. I think that's I think that's something that the Stein presidency has put into place. Yeah, were you were you really asking me? You were you were actually asking me uh, as should versus can? Uh, maybe should. Versus, <laughs> like, I mean, the thing is, right? Like, I'm. I'm from the country, right? I was driving a tractor at like age eight. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I like 14 is I know it's like one of those things where it's like it's not legal exactly to drive, but mm, there are contexts in which you can get away with driving at 14, at least where mm-hmm. I'm from. Yeah. Yeah, same. <laughs> no one cares. <laughs> as long as you don't run into anything. But we're, that's not what we're talking about today. Or are we? Or we, we could we? just—I guess—we could just talk for like two and a half hours about yeah. driving. Well, let's see. Uh, the boundary is uh, drivers' age limits in in laws, and then we're going beyond that by having younger people drive. Oh, uh, it's it's, uh, it's that's all praxis. That's what praxis is. Yeah. Uh, no, we're talking about CLR James's uh, Beyond a Boundary. There's, I think, there's a subtitle, right? Is that true? Uh, yes, but I don't remember it off the top of my head. Yeah, I got it right in front of me. Let me try here. Maybe not. Maybe not. I yeah, thought... anyway, so it's Beyond a Boundary by C.L.R. James. The edition that we have been working from, or at least the edition that I worked from, is the 50th anniversary edition. Is that the one that you have? Same. Um, so this came, this has been republished by Duke University Press, uh, originally from 1963. Um sadly this version of the book i mean if you're if you're gonna buy the book i say sadly it's not really sadly but uh the previous edition ours has like some cricketers on the front you know that's that's what's on the thing yeah um but uh if you buy the original edition of the book it's like this this wild 1960s 1970s like caribbean um i don't know uh like neon colors with like a palm tree on it or something i have to look this up now hold on yeah so if you go back you could you could do it um yeah the on the cover of this edition the cricketers are frank worrell who gets talked about in the book a bit and then everton weeks Um, okay yeah so that's that's who is on the cover It's it's good it's a good cover but the other one is uh is real good too um interesting yeah yeah, it's it's a good that original cover. They should have brought that back for this. Maybe they couldn't get the rights. But this is by CLR James. If if you know uh, the name already, um, you know this is not someone who gets talked about quite often in the context of game studies. This is probably a great episode for people who are already in game studies and feel very confident about their knowledge of game studies, as well as true true people who have no context for this at all, because. This gets mentioned every now and again in the context of academic studies of games, but almost always in the sense of like, this is sports studies, or this is like this weird one-off book that CLR James did, because he is mostly known for being a uh, Marxist critic of literature and culture. 
um, he was politically involved his entire life, or, or this is kind of what the book is about too, is his political awakening. But he lived, uh, he was born in Trinidad, 1901. Um, he died in England in 1989. Um, and yeah, there's very little that happens in Marxist political organization that's during the 20th century that CLR James did not comment on in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote very, very famously, he wrote uh, The Black Jacobins, which is about the Haitian Revolution, yeah. which was a very big... I mean, ba- the basic argument of, of James is that um, the Haitian Revolution was the true inheritors of the ideology or, or the um, revolutionary spirit of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. That that truly the Haitian Revolution was as massive and important economically politically ideologically conceptually as the french revolution and for various reasons some of which are structural racism but he probably wouldn't use that language but for various reasons it was never treated as seriously as a political or as a political event as the french revolution had been mm-hmm. um and so that's a book that that got taught a lot for a long time and then i think enough people have responded to it and been critical of it um, and being critical of his kind of shifting Marxism that, that it's waned a little bit um, in, in academia. Yeah. No, it was really weird. Uh, just before I was getting ready to sit down to record the podcast, I like looked over at Twitter and someone was uh, posting uh, uh, captions or like uh, screenshots of like favorite paragraphs from Black Jacobins. And I was like, oh, OK, so like the spirit of James is with us. Yeah, this is this is the book. Uh, I also, I guess, we should probably put this up front. Uh, we don't know anything about cricket. Yeah, I've read this read this book two times. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about cricket, mm-hmm. like nothing. I know a lot more about cricket than I did, uh, but I still really do not understand cricket. And I guess we we might touch on this at some point um, as we're discussing the book itself. But if if for some reason one of our listeners if you are like massive cricket fans um please forgive us uh for not knowing what almost anything that is involved in the game of cricket is called uh because james really loves to talk about cricket he talks about it quite a bit um he does not explain cricket this is not a book for people who do not understand cricket (laughs) no in 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 some senses right we obviously you and i have gotten something out of it but what we got out of it was not uh, a better understanding of cricket as as an actual practice yeah yeah and maybe that's this is a good way of like talking about the structure of this book i mean it is it is on partially or all of these things are true at one time i guess is what i should say it is an autobiography mm-hmm. like that is one thing it is it is an analysis of the aesthetics of cricket and the history of cricket in in relationship to that like mm-hmm. that's a thing that it is Another thing that is, and this is the reason that I really enjoy this book, and I really enjoy this book in the, the context of game studies, is it is a book about the political economy and the cultural implications of cricket in the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Just kind of... So so it's all of those things. And, and, you know, we can almost imagine, like, you know, there's this camera that's, that's floating around and choosing different shots or, or different contexts to look in on. And there's some chapters we are just going to straight up not talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we had an off-air conversation about it. Because they are a deep biographical, you know, dive into one particular player in a particular context that I think if we knew the history of cricket really well, we could really appreciate the way that CLR James is like, 
redefining history here or talking about the way this person changes the aesthetics or the play of the game or you know maybe even something else that i'm not aware of but we just don't have a the like gameplay knowledge on some basic level Mm -hmm. and b the historical context that clr james has i mean this dude is straight up an expert in this game right like he is also right a a he writes on cricket right he is a cricket journalist at one point right am i incorrect yeah Yes, so he said he was a cricket journalist at multiple points in his life, and he moved to the United States, I believe, for 15 years, and he read the the newspaper every day to figure <laughs> out what was happening in cricket, but didn't see cricket at all during that time. Right. Yes. And so it's like, oh, this is a guy who cares. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, you know, I I wonder if someone who's even deep deep into cricket i wonder how much those sections of this book are even helpful for those people Uh, (laughs) just because it seems like so much uh you know forgive the pun but so much inside baseball yes (laughs) (laughs) which cricket is kind of like sort of yes um maybe at the end we'll talk about my insight that i had that cricket is a moba um Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, we'll talk more about that uh but yeah no i guess we can maybe just sort of start with uh we're probably going to do what did you say like maybe the first five chapters are the ones that i think are going to give us a good basis yeah i think so i think yeah i think basically parts one and two or all of part one because the book is both in chapters and parts mm-hmm. um but i think those are because they're about his early life and his context in trinidad so we'll do the first few chapters we'll let you know when we're skipping mm-hmm. but uh yeah this is not going to be the full chapter by chapter breakdown that we would normally do just because some parts are, if this were a cricket podcast, they, they would be awesome. Yeah. But um, well, it's a it's, more general game studies thing. In, in a sense, the book is almost like an essay collection. Y- yes. Right. Yeah. Like, Certainly the different sections feel that right. way. Right. Like there are, there are connections. Everything is connected, but not everything is integral to understanding everything else. Like there are parts of different conversations happening here. Yes. And I, I wanted to note here too at the very top. One of the reasons I think this book is such an interesting one to read is that, uh, you know, remember that Man Playing Games, the Kawa that we read, mm-hmm. right? Yes. That is 1961 yes. in translation. I'm looking to, to remember here. Uh, yeah, 1961. This book, C.L.R. James's book, 1963. Huh. So, so this is partially the reason that I find this book so fascinating is that this is a contemporary and competing, in my mind, you know, ideologically competing book of how to think about games. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this book is doing just as much intellectual labor uh, of trying to parse out what is the relationship between people, their culture, and the games they play as the Calwa is doing, but it's coming from a completely different angle, right? Mm-hmm. James is not French. James is a black man living in Trinidad mm-hmm. um, who's sort of from the middle class at sometimes and sometimes not as much of the middle class. It kind of depends on how he's talking about his life. Um, this is not a book that is from anthropology, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's autobiography. It's not trying to make a big, broad claim. I mean, it's talking about Trinidad in the context of the British Empire and then in relationship to other parts of the empire. But he's not trying to say things like, this is how one culture plays and this is how my culture plays and this is how they compare. He's talking very specifically in a very specific way about how one 
kind of composite culture that's brought together by imperialism and, and violence and all these kind of things, how that game intersects with that big system and how it is instantiated in his own life. Yes. Um, and so part of, you know, my thoughts about this book are, you know, are speculative. And I actually want to write this piece. I, I was working on something uh, earlier this year where I thought that, oh, that's where I would make this claim. And as I wrote the piece, I didn't really get there. But to my mind, right, I think there's a very interesting essay to be written, and I'm, I'm kind of working on this uh, slowly, um, speculatively, about what if instead of Calois we read James? You know, what if C.L.R. Mm-hmm. James had as much of an impact in earlier game studies as Calois did? Um, because weirdly enough, like, you know, in one of the later chapters, and, and Michael, I'm really interested in what you have to say about this, but he almost creates his own categories of games but yes. uh, yeah, but but drama is number mm-hmm. one. Yes, uh, you know the, the dramatic function of the game. So we'll wait till we get there before we do it. But there are some direct lines of comparison between these books, that, some of which we'll talk about here uh, in the show. But I would really strongly encourage you if you're reading man playing games in a class, or if you're teaching it, especially if you're teaching it, at least teach the the what is art chapter out of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, because it really gets down into the nitty-gritty of what is the experience of participating in and seeing play, and how does it deal with aesthetics, and how does it deal with culture? I think it's fascinating. Yes, no, it is, it is. It's very, very cool. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, the other thing to just be clear about, right, is that the the upshot compared to Calois is that this is significantly less racist uh, in, in, yeah. in broad uh, strokes ways, um, because he is, again, talking about things... Uh, it's interesting because you can kind of do that thing where you um, can align them and see how they have claims that are maybe analogous or at least parallel. Um, but it becomes so different for James because he is talking about specifically this culture and sort of trying to reverse engineer like his experience of being a person in that culture and find out like what what components are nestled in this larger like imperial structure in which he finds himself. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's very, very interesting. So, yes. Um, and uh, I guess we want to jump in. Where are we? Are we at the requisite um, hour in before we start talking about the book itself? Well, we haven't gotten to the the uh, first chapter yet, so okay. <laughs> we still have another hour and a half of, of covering the very beginning. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm interested in, in this, right? So there's a preface. There's a short preface to the book, and I actually read the preface this time. And <laughs> you and I job. both pulled out different. Yeah, sometimes I don't. I'm, I'm honest about it. But uh, both of us pulled out quotes, one of which is, is uh, you know, disciplinarily important to you for if people are just listening to this episode, and this is the first Game Studies Studies Buddies episode you've listened to. Uh, I'm a media studies uh, PhD person. Michael is a early modern studies, right? Yes. Early, early, early yes. modern literature. No, not just literature. Early modernism. Yes. Early modern literature and culture. I, a- I, I stopped calling you a Shakespearean, so I, mm. I feel like I'm, I'm making a lot of progress here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I pulled out this quote where he says, what do they know of cricket who only cricket know? <laughs> I don't know what that means at all, like right. even a little bit. So I, I'm just putting that out there, which is fun. But yours is a little bit more interesting. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, no, the quote that I pulled out was uh, to establish his own identity. Caliban, after three centuries, must himself pioneer into regions Caesar never knew. Yeah, and um, so yeah. And James is, like, using that to, to say, like, this is what this book is, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is the work of that book. So can you can, can you uh, Shakespeareally unpack this for us? Right, so uh, 
Caliban is a character in Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. Um, he is a character of questionable human status. Uh, he, it's, it's very, very strange. Um, he, he is very often con contemporarily, like right now, um, Caliban is understood as kind of a, a colonial subject because he is the person who lives on the island um, and then Prospero, the, the sort of magician main character of the Tempest, shows up with his daughter, takes over the island and dispossesses Caliban. Um, but there's also this very complicated backstory where uh, at some point Caliban seems to have like had uh, a very good relationship with Prospero, right? They taught him to speak English, they taught him to read, uh, but then Caliban supposedly um, attempted to rape uh, Prospero's daughter, and so he becomes their slave. And uh, he's sort of, he's very much in, in terms of uh, character type, he's based on like the, the sneaky servant character that comes out of uh, uh, classical Greek um, comedy, um, but obviously it gets layered over with all of this stuff that's then happening in uh, you know the early 1600s with the colonial scene, um, and Caliban is very often racialized, and there's been a lot of uh, talk about um, how and and when I say racialized, right? It's it's such a mess because the racial categories that we understand as as all these different people are separate things um, uh, hasn't quite congealed yet in in that way so when you look at Caliban you can see reflections in kind of this colonial situation that Shakespeare is describing um you see reflections of like the the English empire as it was uh sort of the prototyped in Ireland right there's been research talking about how like the the experience of um colonial Ireland has has fed into this play but then also um the Americas um but then also, the play itself uh, takes place in the Mediterranean in some vague sense. So there's this weird twisty uh, knot of uh, colonialism and power and so on and so forth. Um, Caliban is not treated particularly well by the play. He's not, uh, you know, in any sense... Um, a character like he he's a character who is very very sad but at the same time uh he, he just has very fraught status um and as i've already said he he is understood as kind of a colonial subject and so obviously james is kind of picking up um on that here uh, caliban actually becomes super important for um like the caribbean independence movements and caribbean authors are uh he shows up a lot in 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 that sort of literature um and then having you know finally this uh ending of the preface to establish his own identity Caliban after three centuries must himself pioneer into regions Caesar never knew um, suggests James's desire to kind of move beyond uh, that initial colonial scene um, and figure out what what does Caliban do after the play ends um, mm. and I think it's interesting that he says uh, must himself pioneer into regions Caesar never knew uh, because um, you know like sort of famously uh the the roman empire kind of balks once it gets to england <laughs> hmm. right so there's a, a mm. sense of um you know the, because james ends up uh going back we're not really going back but right like he goes to uh the uk and america but he goes to these places that that are now sort of the imperial centers of his day and he sort of 
joins those intellectual circles, um, but then he also breaks with them or steps outside of them by, uh, you know, becoming this huge advocate for uh, West Indian self-governance and things of that nature. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, his whole thing is he is a he is a citizen of the empire. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think there's any way of reading C.L.R. James and not just reconciling with that fact. And he is like fully reconciled with that fact. Right. I Mm -hmm. mean. He says at one point early in the book that he, he had plans basically when he went to England to write two books, uh, or I, at some point in his life, he had plans to write two books. Uh, one was on Melville and one was on uh, cricket. Yes. And like, this is the cricket book you're finally getting. <laughs> and for him, those are not different. Like aesthetics, reading, dealing with the culture and the context and the history. And he doesn't have any problem with... Um, you know, figuring out the full context for all of those, right? Mm-hmm. Melville being within a particular uh, class and race and uh, productive uh, situation and cricket being in those situations at the same time, right? And mm-hmm. so, he, he, you know, it's not really oscillating between two different genres for him or, or ways of thinking. It's the same way of thinking, just applied to different parts of the, the culture more broadly. Right. Uh, and I find that very cool. Uh, but I could also see wh- why people might be frustrated with that, too. <laughs> Um, because maybe those things are not exactly the same, but, um, but yeah, what he starts talking about in the beginning of this book is that his house, when he was growing up was right up against a cricket field. Yes. What are the odds? Um, What, what are the odds? And so he could look out his, what, the kitchen window or something like that. Yeah. He Um, would like get up on a chair and look out the kitchen window. Yeah, because he could get up on a chair, and this is how he connects these things up, right? He says, I could get up on a chair, and by stretching, I could reach the books that were on top of the shelf. Mm -hmm. And by also stretching, I could look at cricket. And so those are the two things that really began to matter for him as a kid, were cricket as as an activity, sport, thing to do, thing to think about, thing to celebrate with, and then books, British literature, English literature in particular, um, which he became very, very, very invested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we learn about this kid named Matthew Bondman. Yes, Matthew Bondman, who is whew, not from not from a good set, we must say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so he's he so so the Bondman family rents from C.L.R. James's family, like rent an apartment or something from them, um, which immediately gives you some insight into C.L.R. James's like economic context. Mm-hmm. Like, like they, they own property that they can rent to other people. Matthew Bondman, um, it, he doesn't wear shoes anywhere. Right. Which makes, which makes CLR James's, uh, the, the women in his family irate. Yes. Um, yeah, a lot of, uh, so the, the interest, one of the other interesting things about this book is that it is written in such a, it almost reads like, um, narrative nonfiction. In, in a lot yeah. of places. And so one of the things that is happening in this earlier chapter uh, that is hard to, to, talk, to talk about in description is that we have almost um, a Jane Austen type way of narrating uh, the, the, the situation in which young James lives uh, because the opinions that he's giving about uh, this Matthew Bondman character uh, they're not really his opinions, right? They're the opinions of his aunts. Um, and we get kind of like uh, a sense of their uh, investment in certain codes of propriety and uh, how that also marks them as part of a certain economic class. And then Matthew Bondman, 
uh, you know, is like not wearing shoes anywhere. He's uh, he what is it? He has an abominable way of life is is mm-hmm. one thing that is said at one point. Um, his family is kind of loud and I guess obnoxious, but but he is a damn good cricket player. Yeah, he's amazingly good at cricket. And so the these like opening five, six pages are James doing this, I think, astounding work, right, of like basically painting the, the entire social situation around Matthew Bondman. And he basically says like there's cricket in the way that, that Matthew Bondman interacts with that. And there's like my family's Puritan values. And mm-hmm. so like that Puritanism judges Matthew Bondman. And Matthew Bondman's like 12 or something, right? He's a kid. I think it's I it's hard to keep track of ages, I feel like. Um <laughs> well, he says at some point that like as he became a teenager, he uh-huh. he turns away from cricket. So I think I'm I'm assuming I don't actually okay. I, I don't have a good idea. But yeah, he's somewhere in the in preteen or teen years. I think okay. that's fair. Um so he's saying like there's cricket and then there's like the way that this puritanism this religious tradition of the james family how it sees matthew bondman and it sees how the nation state sees him so he says specifically that matthew bondman is not part of quote genus britannic britannicus mm-hmm. uh you know you know the the this kind of british mode of being um that clr james ends up being and what I think is really interesting, too, is that James specifically knits in a local, um, like, cricket enthusiast slash coach named Razek, who is from India, and he has an opinion on Matthew Bondman, right? So it's yes. the, this entire imperial cultural context of religion, culture, uh, the various parts of the empire, they all intersect on people watching Matthew Bondman and judging him as a human being, but extolling his virtues as a cricket player. Right. Um, all at the same time. Like, all these things are occurring at once. There's no splitting them apart. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that gets mentioned here that I, I just want to note is uh, the fact that James informs us that when he was, like, seven or eight years old, his favorite book was Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Yes, which and some other book becomes his favorite, and then he's back to Vanity Fair. Yeah, and he and and when I say like his favorite, like he talks about having read it like multiple times by the time he's like thirteen. And Vanity Fair is not a short book, and it's not the sort of book that you would think would like really delight a a like nine year old boy. <laughs> um, yes, it's very much like this sort of sprawling eighteenth uh, century, actually it's technically early nineteenth century. Um, sort of social satire kind of thing. Um, and it is just wild to give, like, that tells you so much about who this kid was, is that he's just reading and rereading Vanity Fair. Yeah, and that's, like, possible, too, right? I right. mean, that, that says, you know, one does not get the sense that, since that Matthew Bondman had that uh, ability given to him, right? Or or the, the did not grow up in the context where that was available to right, him, I guess Right, right. So, like, very clearly, like, James is... And I, like, I just, a, a kid reading Vanity Fair, like, I don't even like Vanity Fair, but also he <laughs> reads tons of cricket magazines and he, like, keeps uh, scrapbooks of, of the scores. Yeah, he was a weird kid. <laughs> a British intellectual long before I was 10, that's a quote, already an yes. alien in my own environment among my own people, even my own family. Somehow from around me, I had selected and fastened onto the things that made a whole. Yeah. Um, 
Which which is like on one hand you're like there's a lot of times where you're like CLR James you need to calm down. <laughs> yeah, like you 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 are doing a lot. You're you're doing a lot of stuff here. But on the other hand, I think it's very instructive because he's setting himself up as like a parallel for Matthew Bondman, right? Right. Um there there's really this feeling of um, you know, but for the grace of God go I. Mm-hmm. Um in the sense of like Matthew Bondman is naturally talented at cricket, and that provides this kind of singularity of context, like all of the world can revolve around Matthew Bondman, and some things are, are, are where he doesn't fit in society, but where he does really fit in society makes up for those problems, right? And it's only when he stops playing cricket that, like, the full brunt of the violence of, of society really comes down on him, mm-hmm. um, or the violence of imperial governance. Um, and on the other hand, there's there's James, who, like, loves cricket and is definitely a part of it, but doesn't seem to be particularly talented at it. You know, he's not a... Um, he's not a virtuoso, what he would call, calls later in the book, a virtuoso player, right? right? He's not hitting the ball or cutting the ball or whatever in ways that are unimaginable, you know, or right. outside of that individual player. Um, and so there's an interesting thing going on there because it's like, these are the two pathways of how the empire gets in you as a person, right? Mm-hmm. It can get into you through cricket or it can get into you through literature and, James just happens to have both of those in different ways. Um, but he is saying that, like, Bondman, if he kept with cricket, he could have been one of the best players. And and the rest of this book, we get all these different pieces of information about the cricket context in British culture, writ broadly, colonial culture. Um, Matthew Bondman could have had access to or lived in that context right? if he had continued to play cricket. Um so there's the there, there's kind of this parallel of like James is British because or you know a, a British intellectual as as uh, you quoted James is a British intellectual because of the books he read Matthew Bondman could have been a British cricketer right uh, because of the way he played mm-hmm. uh, yeah no so then like that that's kind of the setup there uh, and then the second chapter goes more in depth on the various I guess sort of uh, fractionation of like subjectivity that happens uh because that's when he sort of pulls to the fore so he's talking james talks about his life as a war and this is a quote from page 21 a war between english puritanism english literature and cricket and the realism of west indian life and this is where he 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 says he sees himself as two people the rebel and the puritan so he 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 recognizes that he's internalized a lot of his family's sort of very very severe middle class morality um, like the aunts who, you know, just do not like this Matthew Bondman character, but are nevertheless compelled to admit that he's very good at cricket. Um, and yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, hold on, I want to make sure. So he also he he moves back and forth in some of these chapters, and I don't remember when certain things happen. Um, yeah, and I just like and some I, things get repeated too quite a bit. So right, and I was trying to remember if this is the chapter where he talks. No, it's the next chapter. I'll talk about. Um, him reading the history books uh, oh, sure. <laughs> uh but his the second chapter the against the current is mostly uh dedicated to him kind of sketching out uh the the domestic uh values that get instilled in him as sort of the puritan um but then also his feeling t- you know the the feeling that I don't necessarily am going to say is universal, but like, you know, the, 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 the desire to buck against the, the things that are being told to you or instilled in you. There's a, there's a point where he, cause he's talking about this, the, these two kind of figures you were talking about, the rebel and the Puritan. And what I think is interesting about those is that 
unlike anything else we've read around game studies, I would say even the more contemporary stuff that we have read, uh, it's very rare for religion to come up in a way that is anything other than like anthropological ritual, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, for Huizinga or Kalwar or whatever, games are a part of culture and religion is a part of culture. And there are ways that, that you know, for Kalwar, for example, games emerge out of religious play, the masks of the gods, all that kind of stuff that we read. Um, but James is very explicit about saying something, you know, things about his Puritanism in particular. Mm-hmm. He unites this discourse, this way of talking about um, the rules of a game and Puritanism. Mm-hmm. That that the, the the very idea that what matters when you enter into the the you know when you get on the cricket what. What's it called? The, the cricket pitch? hatch or something? The yeah. pitch. The cricket pitch, hatch. Pitch. The cricket hatch. Uh, the, yeah, the, the cricket pitch. When you get on there, uh, I think you actually have the quotation here. Or may, wait, maybe I have it. Um, dang, I, I thought I had the, the quote here. But but basically, he's saying that you know once you get on there, you are subservient to an arbitrary set of rules. And he's never saying that, like, that's how Puritanism thinks of God. He's never making that connection. Mm-hmm. But by writing these two things in sequence and going back and forth with them, that's the connection he's making. I mean, he's saying that the rules of gamesmanship, in, of cricket in particular, are religious doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they function the same way, that there's an arbitrariness to some level, that any individual can rebel against the... Um, or, or it can be a virtuoso in the moment, but at the end of the day, the the way that innings or whatever the the sticks, whatever they're called, the wicket, uh, the wicket that like the wicket's gonna fall how it falls, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to work within a very certain pattern to do it. Uh, I have this quote here on twenty five. He says um, the, that one of the the part of the value of cricket was quote we learned to play with the team, which meant subordinating your personal inclinations and even interests to the good of the whole. Mm-hmm. So like there's this Puritan kind of moment, I think, or, or, or I think he is saying there's an alliance between Puritanism as a religious structure and the idea that there is a holistic society that you need to be putting yourself in. And I think that he's making that jump with colonialism as well. Mm-hmm. And then like the broader political context that you're in, um, that that cricket becomes this weird kind of simulation or model of highly structured forms of life, colonial governance puritanism that kind of stuff well and i mean he at the end of this chapter he goes so far as to kind of uh jump to the ancient greeks and kind of mm-hmm. their cultural fixation on athleticism um and he's of course not the not the first author we've read uh to to do this um but uh he also sort of points out that one of the things that's different uh in his context in james's context is kind of the weird placelessness of of sport um compared to uh it, it, as james understands it right he he looks back on ancient greek history and he can see very clearly how like the olympics are symptomatic of um ancient greek class structure um mm-hmm. and he is sort of intrigued by how uh, much short, more open um, and placeless and kind of uh, malleable sport is in, in the contemporary uh, colonial context. Um, though we'll see, I guess, uh, what he thinks of that once we start talking about the invention of drama. Yeah, and that's, I, I'm glad you're bringing this up because this is a really great place to point to the difference between James and someone like Huizinga or someone like Calois. 
because they see games as being one-to-one a representation of the society you live in, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like that's fundamentally, you know, Hazinga's stages of development, uh, you know, have full representations in the games, in the way that people play. Right. For James, it's about they are responsive to material conditions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Greek games emerge from the Greek class structure, you know, the arrangement of materials and resources in that society. They're not the same thing, right? They're, they're like, you know, it's like if you took a photograph, um, you know, we can say if you we go outdoors and we take a photograph, we can say that it has some alignment with material reality. But anyone who's used Instagram will tell you they are not material reality, right? Right. Um, photographs are not the world. They are they are a map of that world. And I, I you know, there's so there's a little bit of a difference here, I think. Uh, but it's a difference that makes a lot of difference. Right. Um, Absolutely. Um, yeah. That about that whole that just the whole set of context. The quote that that I wanted to read earlier about Puritanism. It's in the back half of something else. He says it's on twenty eight. Uh, this is when he's talking about the two people. Mm-hmm. Um. So it's the quote you were talking about earlier, but this is the full sentence. Uh, quote, two people lived in me. One, the rebel against all family and school discipline and order. <laughs> the other, a Puritan who would cut off a finger sooner than do anything contrary to the ethics of the game. Mm-hmm. It's like games are even an ethical system, which is... Uh, that's, that's a real... Uh, it's, not, it's good to see this in 1963. It didn't, it didn't take us all that long to get here. Um, <laughs> although I think sometimes games, game studies would make you think that it, that it took a long time, but... Um, but yeah, anything else you want to talk about in the second chapter here? Um, uh, he's really not, setting up the difference between colonial life in Britain, too. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is, um, I mean, just another quote, and this is probably, not not the quote itself is familiar to anyone who's ever done any kind of, like, post-colonial reading, um, but, like, the, the ideas or the themes that are being tapped into here, this is from page 30. Um, he, this is when he's talking about kind of um, his uh, sort of, the way that he comes to understand or the way that his family maybe came to understand um, their position with regard to uh, like Britain specifically. So he says, our masters, our curriculum, that is, you know, in our schools, our code of morals, everything began from the basis that Britain was the source of all light and leading, and our business was to admire, wonder, imitate, learn. Our criterion of success was to have succeeded in approaching that distant ideal. To attain it was, of course, impossible. Um, so this, uh, taking that and also the point that you uh, made about sort of the ethics or like games as ethical systems actually, I think, takes us into the next chapter uh, because this is where, for instance, he starts talking about, he, he returns to the subject of Puritanism, um, but he essentially talks about how his family is so very reserved, his aunts and his mother, um, but also he he learn, he talks about how he learns his own emotional reservation, not just from his family, but from reading Vanity Fair. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that his family is not as expressive as, uh, quote unquote, the West Indian masses. Uh, 
and then he's reading Vanity Fair, which has all of these characters having to kind of like stifle their emotions to live up to the sort of English ideal of of the stiff upper lip of the the resourceful English person who will weather hard times. Um, and he talks about internalizing all of this and reading all of this British history. And this is the thing that I mentioned earlier, where he uh, is reading all of these English history books and quote, I became resentful of the fact that the English always won all or nearly all of the battles and read every new history book I could find, searching out and noting the battles they had lost. Yeah. Yeah. This is a guy who's like, I'm going to find it. Right. I'm, I'm doing it. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I, I I like that, right? I love that. I just love the idea of young young CLR James, like, what the hell? Like, why are the British always winning these battles? <laughs> um, because, of course, right, like, uh, history is going to be written by, uh, or the colonial history is going to be written by the colonists. Um, yeah. But then he, uh, so then he has the realization um, that his family is kind of, so hardcore into their puritanism precisely because it is a uh, sort of alien right in the sense that it is imposed upon them um by this colonial system uh this is page 42 as far back as i can trace my consciousness the original found itself and came to maturity within a system uh, that was the result of centuries of development in another land was transported as a hothouse flower is transplanted and bore some strange fruit um so that that recognition of uh, what we would call like colonial hybridity of um, recognizing that uh, the social structure that has been sort of set up for him to come of age in and for his family to even exist in um, is in some sense something that has been imposed on them. Yeah. And, and what is interesting here, too, right, is that he's not, you know, you can imagine a version of this that's like hyper regretful of all of this right that that thackeray you know um you know in, in british writing in general dominates his life to the to the uh, exclusion of other things that cricket comes to dominate his life i mean in the the previous chapter we, we we talked about briefly but like he was a scholarship student to one of the better schools in his country and he basically says he blew it completely because he liked playing cricket so much right yeah. like and he's <laughs> reading all these like books he's having a good like intellectual time but he just doesn't care about school in some ways um he, he like actually you know he embarrasses his whole family because they're all teachers and, mm -hmm. and you know they, they basically say look the entirety of society is frowning on us because you're goofing off playing cricket all the time um, but you never get the sense here that, that he's saying like that something fundamentally was lost. I mean, everything that, that he is saying is that this occurred historically that you can't change history. And so then what is to be done? You know, this very like Leninistic kind of question, mm -hmm. like then therefore, what does the, the colony have to do in the reality of the situation? Right. Which is why it, it comes up a bit in this book, but really CLR James is known for, um, his support for the American labor movement, it's a big part of it. Um, his writings about Marxism and art, that, that's another thing. And then um, West Indian, and, and and just to be clear, we're using that term because that is the historical term, and that's the one that CLR James is using. Uh, Caribbean countries that are colonized by the English, right, mm -hmm. is, is West Indian, quote-unquote. Um but but really, that's his big his last big thing is in independence um, and self governance, if not independence, right? So the idea that Trinidad, now Trinidad and Tobago, would be able to govern itself without colonial governors or um, 
you know, their education system 100% determined by someone in England or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so all of that is, like, swirling around for him, right? And and that bo- the end of that quote you read of bore some strange fruit, right? You don't really ever get the sense that C.L.R. James was angry that he, that he was bore as that fruit, right? Right, um, no, there's but, definitely a sense of, I mean, he, he does not seem, like, sad about kind of some sort of lost original or lost innocence, right? He has He doesn't seem to have some, like, oh, if only colonialism hadn't happened. He's just kind of like, well, colonialism happened, so what shall we do? Yeah, which which is different, I think, than a lot of other people in the post-colonial context that we would read, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, pan-Africanism is happening right now at the exact, or not, right, not, well, I mean, I guess it's still happening while I'm speaking, but I mean, in the context that C.L.R. James is writing, um, uh, global uh, African diaspora uh, is, is really mattering. So uh, uh, American black radicals are doing the work of going back to um, various either colonized countries in Africa or places where slaves were kidnapped and then, then sold into the slave trade and really doing a lot of work to unify political strategies across those. You know, the, the idea that the decolonizing, decolonizing effort is global and it's necessary and that, you know, uh, if someone is on the receiving end of colonial violence anywhere, that, that there is a global alliance, particularly of, uh, in the African diaspora, of help that mm-hmm. could be there. Um, you know, so that's kind of the context that he's in. And so, you, so I wouldn't say this is a typical way of reading the situation in his intellectual context is all I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's that. And then um, the end of this chapter. So he's, uh, this chapter is kind of, as we've already sort of touched on talking about his early schooling experiences um, and his early education. And uh, there's this interesting thing that he notes where uh, the British school system, as it gets sort of uh, passed on to uh, to Trinidad, uh, there's, and I'm not sure how exactly I might describe this. So Cameron, you might be of some help. Um, Harry Potter, Harry it's, Potter. It's like Harry, Harry Potter. Potter. It's Harry Potter. Uh, no, there's this, there's, um, there's this particular like British way of understanding your relationship to an institution. Um, is is that fair to say? Are you? Do you yeah, know what I'm getting yeah, at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. No, I mean, I, I'm kind of being silly, but on the other hand, I I think the best equivalents might be Harry Potter. That right. You, like you have a school, but you have houses in that school, or you have classes in that school, or whatever. Um, right. So there's like, um, there's there's this weird way in which you can be deeply personally invested in the school or like in your house but like not necessarily in the school you get this like weird little bit of ironic distance um where the the school becomes kind of sublimated or abstracted and there can be kind of you know some kvetching um about like oh you know the school all this work that we're doing um the teachers like so and so is a huge jerk blah 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 but you never do anything that might impugn the honor of the school itself. Um, mm-hmm. And this kind of comes to a head when he's in uh, in 1938, which just incidentally, right, is when um, Vazinga publishes uh, Homo Ludens. Uh, in 1938, he is, uh, by this point, living in the United States. Um, and he... Uh, oh, it's not... So 1938 is when he goes to the United States. It's in uh, 1950 specifically... Um, that there's this a uh, big point shaving scandal 
um, yeah. within the American uh, college uh, systems, like uh, basketball, like bracket, right? Uh, basically, um, students are taking bribes and th- or student student athletes are taking bribes and throwing games. Um, and yeah, there's a, I, I did not know anything about this, right? But there's apparently a run of game fixing in college athletics in 1950. Yeah. <laughs> it's a national, like, conspiracy, basically, yeah, yeah. the way he puts it out. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge scandal. Um, and James is talking about sitting with some of his uh, intellectual friends um, over, you know, lunch or something. They're all kind of sitting around. Um, and he's reading the paper, and he's reading about this point-shaving conspiracy. And he is just disgusted and <laughs> scandalized like he cannot believe that these boys would have done such a thing um and all of the americans are like extremely amused by uh the the horror that he is experiencing they just like uh because in this he touches on this because he's usually so reserved um that to have him give such a fiery denunciation of these teens essentially they're just like whoa we we didn't expect this from you and so they end up, they have this talk like they all sort of talk about it and um he discovers that the americans um his american friends uh basically think that the worst thing that has happened is that the students got caught <laughs> uh yes. that it was yes. it was it was totally like they they do not care that uh, the school itself that its image might be harmed or that like the the sanctity of the game um, is at stake, which are all things that are very concerning for James. Um, so the you get this nice little illustration of I think you know the 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 broader idea of American ethics and how do we acquire these things right? How is how is the American uh, society set up to inculcate certain uh, ways of ethical thinking and ethical action in individuals? Um, and the answer is like it's very individualistic, especially compared to the the context that James is coming out of, um, where you can complain about your teachers all you want, but you'll never harm the school. Uh, yeah. And so he has just like this bizarre moment where he realizes how deeply he has internalized something that is a unique feature of like the British school system. Um, and he's like 40 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, this is another I mean, each of these these first three chapters, because they're they are in in part what they make up part one of the book. Right. And so <laughs> the first one's about like growing up and the unity of the British Empire in cricket like just in a general sense right and the second one's a little bit more about his personal journey within that system and how it works but this chapter yeah as as you're pointing out this is about like how the play of a game the ethical responsibility to the game and the system that produces you as a human being right like if this were Foucault and we were getting into it right it's the disciplinary apparatus that makes you uh, from a docile body into a fully fledged subject, right? Mm-hmm. From someone who could be shaped and molded into the person you are in a system. And so how the game, how that thing, and then how your like personal ethics evolve, right? I mean, what he's doing just in that anecdote that I find so amazing is that he's saying that the opinions of a player, the opinions of the platform or institution that affords that play, and the opinions of the game or the way the game is played are all the exact same thing. So, right, like, when I'm playing Counter-Strike, I am Steam, I am the game, and I'm myself as a player. And Mm -hmm. all of the assumptions about what is good, you know, capital G good, what is the best way to embrace that, those are all happening at one time to me. They are not separable. 
And, you know, his kind of thing, like you're saying, when he discovers this, when he's like 40 years old, you know, he's discovering like, oh, shit, I am the school to some degree. Like, I've been Mm -hmm. fully... I've been fully um, adapted to that system in ways that I'm not even aware of. It took this kind of big break of culture and context for me to even see the way that I am in relationship to that game. Um, and so to me, like, this is this is big. I mean, this is the same claim on some level as um, Shira Chess is making in Ready Player Two, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that, that this is uh, the construction of a player. Um, and how a player operates within a system, but it's in a different language in the sense of like it, it is making its point in a, through an anecdote rather than like analytical theory, and it's doing it through autobiography. But I just find those so overwhelmingly compatible with one another. And again, this is this is contemporary with Hazinga, right? This is contemporary <laughs> with Kawa. Um, you know, this is a place where game studies could have looked earlier, much earlier than it does now, uh, in a really productive way. I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep hammering on that point over and over again just to make it very clear like where I see these points of intersection because they just seem so powerful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So and that that finishes up I guess you know the first part of the book and then uh, the second part is how many chapters is the second part actually? Um, several. Several. I didn't write down my my parts. Uh, oh, I also want to say just a quote uh, earlier when you were talking about America. Uh, James says literally that young Americans quote or, or, or have quote no loyalties to anything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he is. Oh, he is just so upset by those boys uh, point shaving. He is so upset by it. Um, yeah, he, he's he's uh, yeah. Hold on, I've got the book in front of me. I can tell you when the thing is. But you want to? So the next chapter is called "The Light and the Dark." And it's mm-hmm. about specifically the racial system of of the Cricket League. Right. So um, we don't have to go into too much depth and talk about all of the different cricket clubs or like the clubs that exist. Um, like these are not just like cricket clubs. They are in some sense, I, I get the sense that they're like social clubs and cricket teams are a part of them. Um, yeah, we. Yeah, I don't think we have anything that's equivalent. Uh, it would be like if, if you're, oh, it, it's actually kind of like a traveling softball team, I guess. But if it, if it were all the time and you only hung out with your traveling softball team. Yeah. Um, so there uh, are all of these different like little clubs that exist um, on the island. And they all map to certain social divisions. And, of course, those social divisions are all, like, you know, broadly speaking, um, we can start with, like, race, right? There are going to be teams that are going to be, prim- like, uh, primarily for black folks and then teams that are primarily for white folks um, but then within those you have these other subdivisions so there's sort of like the the middling sort uh, of of um, like sort of the black middle class of the island is going to have its own club but then that's going to kind of do this weird thing where they're just going to not let anyone who is kind of dark skinned in right it's only going to be for light skinned black folks um Mm -hmm. uh and actually this is just to jump ahead because um it's interesting right this is the one that james ends up joining when he's like a teenager uh and he notes that like this was a sign of his upward mobility is that he was a man who was um comparatively dark skinned and they let him into the the club that was for like lighter skinned uh black folks on the island so yeah yeah um, that is called maple yes maple <laughs> the two yeah the two that he talks about in in this kind of distinction is uh stingo 
who are hyper-competitive, very good, but they are dark-skinned people of low status. Mm-hmm. And then Maple, which is the one he's a part of, who are pretty competitive, but they are not... I mean, Stingo apparently becomes, like, a, a amazing team. Um, and it's, yeah. like, mostly made of day laborers and, like, farm workers and things like that. Yeah. Um, there's also one for Catholics. <laughs> well, it, you know what? Everybody gets a team. Um, what, what, what is interesting to me here, too, right, is, like, obviously there's this distinction happening um, between skin color right and he makes it very explicit right this is the term for this is colorism that was the, the mm-hmm. term when he was uh alive and that's still the term for it today um and this is the only time i've ever read about colorism in a games context well and he has on uh page 51 this really interesting moment where he anticipates his reader objecting to basically this entire chapter um yes where he says you know and like i know what you're going to say that this is uh at quote not cricket um and then he adds quote these are not random reminisces this is the game as i have known it and this is the game i am going to write about um so i i get the sense and uh james helps me get the sense that there is actually quite a bit of cricket literature right there are all sorts of other books that he name drops at various points um and he is very aware that there are there there are readers for these books and they are probably going to be reading his particular book on cricket and see that it is very different and be like you know this isn't cricket talking about the different clubs and their makeups that's not cricket um, but he is emphatic that, uh, you know, he is talking about the game that is experienced as he has experienced it as it is played, right? The game is not extricable from its social context. Yes. And I, I find this such a, this is such an important, I think, pillar of that claim, which is which is a big, important claim in game studies now, right? I mean, there there's an active fight, and we've seen this in many, many books, right? Most most recently in the Aubrey Annable book. There are, pol- there are, are political statements being made in games mm-hmm. that XYZ social factor is, in fact, not the game, right? That was older in game studies in the early 2000s, and that comes back occasionally. And it, it really does still it still seem like that if you are writing about gender or you're writing about race or you're writing about anything that is not the rules of a game, that you really do still have to stake a very strong claim about like, yes, the people who play the game are actually important to the game as, mm-hmm. as a, a thing that exists in the world. And to me, it's it's so powerful. And, and this is yet another place where this compares really well to Calois, right? Where it's like. There are not, this is not an abstract category of anything. There, there are people who are playing this thing, and the makeup of the group of the people who play really does matter for the whole thing. Um, you know, it, I, I think he, I mean, he's basically arguing that the competitiveness of Stingo partially comes from the fact that it is a number of people who, for class and racial reasons, are ignored by the rest of the island. And mm-hmm. so they have a much larger population of potential players to be very competitive. Um, you know, these are people who are, are you know, criminally ignored by the colonial system. Um, right. That seems to me to be very, very important um, in, in all kinds of ways. Right. Well, and then he says um, a few pages later, right, uh, quote, this is page 58, uh, there is more in West Indies cricket than is dreamt of in contemporary cricket philosophy, which is another Shakespeare yeah. re- uh, reference. But also, like, he is basically saying um, after, you know, in the previous chapters, he said, uh, cricket is an import, right? It was it was put here by colonialism, and yet um, the the people here have done something with cricket that has made it exceed the boundaries of of uh, the culture that sort of came up with it that put it here. 
Yeah, which which actually gets him in a very interesting way to a version of the magic circle. Did you pick that up uh, in this chapter? No, no, I did not get that. What is so so? It's on sixty where he's talking about. It's almost you know. I don't think I don't have the sense that he's read Hazinga, or at least I didn't see a, a reference come up in the book. But it's almost like a revised magic circle. He says, oh, wait, um, "Is this the is this the one where he is this the one about race?" Or... No, no, oh, okay. the racialists part. Okay, yeah, no, it's uh, like the au revoir racialists. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That, uh, it, so it's on 60, which actually is where the uh, racialist stuff are. But basically he's describing the competition scenario. Like, mm-hmm. what is going on in competition? And so basically he's saying that, like, like it, it's too long to quote the whole thing. But basically he is saying that there is a, when you get on the pitch... There is a different type of socialization that is happening or sociality or interaction between the classes and between racial categories and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And that those things are given new boundaries by the game. Like they are re-articulated in that scenario. They don't go away, but they do change in how we experience them. Mm. And and he sees that as like a a serious kind of thing, right? That, That... you know, Stingo, the the, the racial and, and class categorization that produces Stingo as a team doesn't go away on the pitch, but they are able to compete with the black middle class or white people. And that provides a social opportunity or at least a, so, a social clash moment that literally cannot happen in any other place on the island at any time. Right. Like, um, oh, that's so fascinating. Right. So the game becomes... Uh, like the game becomes a uh, almost like a, a an attractor for these various other sort of like social uh, dissidences or like um, you know disharmonies, and provides a space for. And this is actually similar to kind of not not necessarily uh, the the safety valve thesis of play that we've talked about a few times before, where there's like you know tensions boil up within in a society oh this is like this is when uh huizinga was like if we uh just played games better we wouldn't have had world war one or whatever yes um, <laughs> uh yep it's it, it's not quite like you know james is not saying that like these tensions build up and then like everything gets released and uh the the social structure maintains right um it's this the game becomes this place where uh all of all of the other divisions get funneled in and then can be kind of it provides like that space of of play literally of of looseness um where certain power dynamics can get challenged or flipped or temporarily um revised yeah it's like this kind of productive collision right Mm -hmm. And, and and i don't think he doesn't really do it here but he does it all throughout this book where he'll talk about how like there there are people in the class structure who should not be should not be given the access that they have or or you know and i say should but in the sense of like the colonial order is organized in such a way that they should not be able to speak to one another or talk to one another be treated with respect by one another mm-hmm. and yet it occurs because cricket bends those rules sometimes right um and he talks too what i find very fascinating at the very end of this chapter he's talking about the chinese business owners right who who are so so basically people come from they immigrate from china and this is this is a big thing across the caribbean that that was kind of like not written about very much up until maybe the past 30 40 years um which is that there's a large 
Southeast Asian and, and East Asian uh, population in the Caribbean, and it's many people who are immigrating or being brought over in various different kinds of context. And so they come over and they live with other people who speak, they're either the same ethnicity or they speak the same language. And, and in his case here, he says it's a common thing for people to become store owners, I guess is the, the, the best way to say it. They become store owners, they begin to sell goods to sharecroppers, and in selling goods to sharecroppers, plantation sharecroppers, they make a significant profit. And the one thing that they intersect with at all these groups, the plantation owners, the sharecroppers, the uh, Chinese store owners, the thing that unites them culturally is cricket. And so these Chinese store owners begin funding cricket clubs that are predominantly participated in by black men. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have nothing in common other than their love of cricket. Um, and I think there's a very, you know, he's he's kind of playing it fast and loose here, but there's a very interesting intersection with economics, with race, with immigration, all those kinds of things happening here. And I don't think he has like a good, you know, he doesn't give us the moral of the story here at all. <laughs> but he's saying, look, this is what cricket affords, this is what it does to people, and what it does to social institutions. Uh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Shrug? <laughs> Question mark? Um yeah. So yeah. I yeah, just uh, sorry to go on about that, but I just really love these examples that he he gives. Well, yeah, no, and I think um actually that takes us into the next chapter in the sense so the the next chapter has a quote near the beginning, um quote, the clash of race, caste and class uh did not retard but stimulated West Indian cricket and then um cutting out a little bit here, quote, social and political passions denied normal outlets expressed themselves so fiercely in cricket and other games precisely because they were games. Um, and then a couple sentences later, uh, the British tradition soaked deep into me was that when you entered the sporting arena, you left behind you the sordid compromises of everyday existence. Yet for us to do that, we would have had to divest ourselves of our skins. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's this wonderful thing where he takes what is kind of the um, idealized version of cricket, which is uh it's this it's it's all a game it's uh everyone sort of stepping outside of reality it's uh all very cordial because again um because this is like the british uh class system there's very much a kind of uh, need for uh maintaining certain types of social interaction and certain uh types of class respect and so on and so forth um but in the game, uh, everyone becomes a player, right? Everyone is a player according to their specific role, and that is the respect that they are afforded. Nevertheless, um, as he points out, right, like, there are certain things that cannot be ignored, uh, that there is never any kind of, like, fully clean slate uh, once you start playing the game, um, and that your feelings from off the field, even if they're being rearticulated on the field, um, they're still there. 100%. Like, there's, it's also this really great, I think, um, indictment of the European mode of play, right? Or the European, because it's not just a British tradition, right? This is literally what we have read Calois in a yeah. French context, and then uh, Hosinga say as well, right? That it's. W- this quote that you read, right? When you entered the sporting arena, you left behind you the sordid compromises of everyday existence. That's the magic circle, mm-hmm. or at least the magic circle in the way that it gets deployed today. And he's just like, no, that is like patently incorrect. Have you did have you thought about anything? Is basically yeah. what he's saying. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, but then after this here, um, 
he, you know, there's something interesting that happens here that, that I think that, you know, someone who wanted to do a, a deeper dive, even though we do, we dive pretty deep in these episodes, a deeper dive into this, right? I mean, he partially says that racism and classicism are what make cricket so productive in the colonies because uh, there are racial tensions and, and, um, uh, aggressions that get worked out and that so so that you then can align with a black or a white team and then cheer them on because of that right mm-hmm. and he's a little bit celebratory of that fact i mean for him it seems that, that at least colonially you know when trinidad it, it gives trinidad national identity right because mm-hmm. they are able to go against a uh, white british team and it's all the people they know. It's all the people they're familiar with. And they're going against this like abstracted colonial oppressor. Um, but he doesn't really, he doesn't say it doesn't work the other way. Right. Which is that cricket becomes a, a, a mode of whiteness subjugating blackness. Mm-hmm. And that could be because the colonies destroy the British. <laughs> yeah. Say it turns out, it turns out like just about every, every place that Britain exported cricket to, became much better at playing cricket than britain itself yeah at some point it's a it, he basically says like yeah it became about the west indies versus the australians <laughs> yeah and the, like those are the people that that cricket was played at a high level for i mean he says when you know i don't think he ever says there's a single british person who's like the top of the field for him when he's doing these individual chapters later on um they're almost all colonial players I mean, I think the closest he gets is W.G. Grace, unless he was Australian. Uh, no, I think he was British. You're right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but he's also like the um, elder statesman or whatever. Right. He's um, he's a little bit outside of um, the proper uh, kind of boundary here because uh, W.G. Grace becomes his his example of what what was it like before cricket became international, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. What was uh, what was immaculate play before any of these things that fuel cricket so efficiently or so well or make cricket so interesting as a social phenomenon? What what was going on before those? Yeah. Um, and again, you know, and this is something that it, probably worth saying now. We said a little bit at the beginning, but a we're skipping all these chapters that mm-hmm. have to do with single individual players or a couple players because literally he is just writing like beat by beat, game by game. This is why these players are interesting and if you don't know cricket well not very helpful uh, to read um and uh and and on the other end um just not not particularly engaging yeah you know i i mean unless i I imagine if you are a cricket fan these are probably very engaging but like what cameron said is is correct it's just it's like little tiny um like uh not quite reader's digest length but like little digestible like sports biographies um a little bit of like their background right he talks about uh like leary constantine is one of one of the other west indian players that he writes about and he has a personal friendship with james um and they kind of influence each other politically uh they live together not like together in the house but like they both live in um lancashire at at the same time i believe um no they were roommates too they were oh okay cool yeah because james uh moves to because uh, Constantine goes to Britain first, and he plays professional cricket there. Mm-hmm. Because James is talking about how uh, once Britain is being like destroyed, right, by all these colonial <laughs> teams, they just start importing one or two players for every cricket club. And so, so yeah, so so Leary goes over first, and 
James is like a teacher at the time. And, you know, he keeps saying that he's a British man who's never been to Britain. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the kind of thing James repeatedly says. And Constantine's like, well, just come stay with me and we'll figure it out. And so that's his first foothold in Britain. And then, yeah, they, they move away. And I think James's wife eventually moves there and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But Yeah, so there's, um, yeah, it's very interesting. And, like, in Britain, uh, Constantine is a renowned cricket player. People love him. Um, but also, he... Uh, is very vocal about uh, racial prejudice. Um, and so on page 126, and I just want to, like, cap... I know we said we're going to uh, skip most of these, but I just want to capture, like, a few key points that I think are interesting. So on no, 126... I think like, I, yeah, I think the Constantine, yeah. like, anecdote actually has a couple things to talk about, so I'm glad you're yeah. you're bringing that up, but yeah. Right, so he... Um, so Constantine, as I said, is... is he's He's politically vocal in Britain. Um, he is, you know, sort of speaking up about racial prejudice um, within cricket and sort of within society. And so people, uh, when I say people, right, I mean like British people, the white British people get really head up about this. Um, quoting quoting James here on page 126, people have asked me why Constantine, who of all persons has been so well received in England, should show what seems to be such an obsession with racial, racial prejudice. Um, which is like the exact same sort of argument that we hear today about uh, black athletes uh, trying to draw attention to uh, uh, racial injustices and prejudices within within sporting leagues, right? This is Colin Kaepernick. Um, like, yes. where uh, does he get off? The exact same argument, right? Like, the the system has been so good for him. Like, where does he get off complaining? So yeah, there's there's Constantine, and I think Constantine is important also because. Um, as I said, uh, so James, uh, when he joins um, the cricket club that he joins and he realizes that this is a sign of his upward mobility, uh, in retrospect, he also recognizes this as a right turn for him, meaning mm-hmm. like politically right, right? He, he recognizes that this is a uh, conservative movement um, going for kind of the uh, m- more uh, refined uh the more refined cricket club that will like dine to include him. Um, and so I don't know too much about his like specific life, but it seems like he kind of tended toward more conservatism up until about this point that he's uh, hanging out with Constantine and Constantine is kind of constantly agitating um, about this, that, and the other. And slowly James himself starts to come around and being like, oh yeah, no, this is, this is right. Right there. They kind of had this really interesting relationship where, um, they just like, they grow together like intellectually and both as activists. Yeah. The, yeah, you get the sense, uh, cause like you're saying, you know, he's, he's a little bit cagey about it, but the, you get the sense that he just didn't think about politics, right. In, in any real way. Mm-hmm. Um, until, because both of them, you know, it's about independence and governance, right? Like, people should be able to make the decisions for the country they live in. Yeah. Um, this kind of very, you know, capital E enlightenment value, uh, which makes sense why James would then go on to unite the enlightenment and the Jacobins and then Haiti, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's 100% just about self-determination, things like that. Um, a couple of things I really like here. Um, in this little section, and, and this is chapters, we're kind of bouncing back and forth between chapters 8 and 9. Those are the Constantine uh, chapters. The, the first thing I really like is how he talks about how Constantine got to do all this talking, and it's because literally anyone, because he was so good at cricket, anyone just wanted him to show up to their like social club and talk. 
Yeah, he was and, like a little like a little celebrity, basically. Yes, yeah, he was like a local, like a regional celebrity. And so they would just be like, hey, you want to come hang out? And he'd be like, yes. And then he would just go and explicitly talk about West Indian uh, independence. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I guess they thought that he was going to come talk about like cricket strategy or like how to be a winner. And he was like, well, I'm here to, to tell you about blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, and he retires. What I think is so cool about him, too, is that he retires from cricket uh, as he's getting older. He sits for the law exam like four times or something, a lot of times, and James tutors him for it. And uh, he goes back to Trinidad to become a uh, like a civil worker. Yeah, and he eventually uh, so becomes he likes- a member of the of the government. Oh yeah, that's right. Because there is a footnote in our edition. Yeah, that says it's like CLR James being like, "This is just from what I knew of him back then. I don't know what his political positions are right now. Please don't take this as like a political statement on my part." Right. Um, which I think is him probably hedging a little bit about. Um, I don't want my political opinions to drag Constantine's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, opinion anywhere else. Which was it's a very friendly move to do. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I like here that comes up a couple times too across the book, but this is the the best place to talk about it, is when he talks about quote West Indian spontaneity, um, which is the idea that the reason that Britain would bring in Caribbean players or just players from the colonies in general is that um, those players had some sort of like energetics or or uh, Caribbean flavor about them right and, mm-hmm. and you know this is a this is a Eating constant y- yes exactly right I mean the, but, but also the additional thing of, of this is a constant racial categorization thing right that mm-hmm. that people who are non-white are uncontrollable they are um, they are less governed by the rules of society. All these kinds of things, right? And these end up showing up in, like, um, Jim Crow tropes, mm-hmm. things like that, which are still alive and well today. You can read a lot about those things. But I think it's interesting to see how that shows up specifically within um, within the context of cricket. That it's not that, oh, they're hyper-disciplined players. Because that's what he says. Constantine is a good player because he realizes what type of player he is, and he trains the opposite way. Um, you know, he's, he's a good batter right Mm -hmm. and he needs to become a good fielder and many people are one or the other and he just trains himself to be one of the fastest fielders out there so he could hit the ball and do amazingly well in that part of the game but he could also catch a ball and run after it and things like that Mm -hmm. super super well and and james says no look this is not like an inherent quality of, of west indian players that that's just like a racial fantasy it's really the byproduct of an immense amount of discipline and commitment to the game um, and I, I just think that's a really interesting, um, you know, thing to show up here because that's a big trope in sports still too, mm-hmm. right? Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of like game and sports stuff that I guess I realized that they stretched all the way back to to the early 20th century. But you know, like, like you were talking to about earlier with like the Kaepernick kind of uh, argument that that's that's been here the whole time. And that is that is a direct argument that gets imported without any change in it, other than the characters changing from British colonial rule. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So there are um, there are a couple more chapters of um, some folks that he talks about. Uh, I think Con- Constantine he talks about a lot because they're friends. Like he, I think he knows some of the others, but like he and Constantine have have a storied history. Um, yeah. Oh, and the other thing that I think uh, should be noted um, 
is that almost all of the cricket players that he talks about, he also talks about what is essentially their day job. Um, yeah, right. Because so, most of them have one, right? And this is the other thing that I think is so fascinating uh, that uh, you know Constantine is not just studying for um, his law exam like for the hell of it, right? Like genuinely, like he is a law student. He wants to be a lawyer, um, mm-hmm. and there is like that's that's a thing that comes up again and again with these players is that they are they are professional cl- cricket players, and so far as one can be a professional cl- cricket player at this point in time. Um, but they also have like other jobs that they're working, uh, and I think that's it's 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 a very interesting thing to think about, especially because for us, professional athlete is professional athlete, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and and it's an interesting thing about how this grows out of a like a wealth and class system, right? Because mm-hmm. you could be if if you are landed, you know, or you are a manufacturing magnate, or you're, and you're going to inherit that. You can go play cricket for 10 years and come back and still be a manufacturing magnate, or you can be a landed aristocrat. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't be a dock worker and then go play cricket for 10 years and come back and be a dock worker. I mean, you, you can, but it's probably going to be better for you to continue to be a dock worker uh, for that <laughs> 10 years. And so so a lot of these, yeah, the, the, these cricket players are, are taking the, the cricket professional period as a time for um, job preparation, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they want to be doctors, they want to be lawyers, they want to be other things, um, you know, because there's life after cricket. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like, now you can be a professional football player, and you're going to do that your entire life up to the time you're 40, and then after that, you are going to bounce around to different jobs, for the most part, that have something to do with that. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, cricket coach emeritus was, was a job <laughs> in, in the 1950s. Although maybe it was, but probably not for the very many people. Um, yeah, so what, what else do you want to hit on through these chapters? Because um, there are some other interesting things uh, just to drop in, I guess. Like, uh, he has a very sort of um, brief theory that he lays out of kind of what are what are the motivating uh, fantasies or desires of, like, 19th century England. Um and he, he essentially locates a kind of division in the 19th century for, for England, uh, which roughly corresponds to pre-industrial and post-industrial. Mm-hmm. And um, sort of how does... Uh, so industrialism kind of filters in, uh, and this initiates a kind of, like, English crisis of identity um, because the entire, like, social mores are, like, being... Un- undermined by shifting economic practices and, and labor practices and things like that. Um, so then uh, we get like Matthew Arnold, who is a, a poet and like literary critic, um, the Tom Brown books, like Tom Brown's school days. And then what is the third one? Do you remember this? Mm, no, I have no idea. Oh, okay. Look. Anyway, uh, we don't have to get in. To too much detail but um he he has this kind of like very small theory of like here are some like foundational texts of like mid-19th century england um and sort of like what they wanted cricket to be and like how how cricket uh became a national pastime um in england that could then be exported out elsewhere um so it has to do with uh like arnold's uh ideas of um 
education, right? You don't just teach the student what you know, you teach them how to acquire knowledge. And this gets kind of weirdly reformatted into uh, students need to be these uh, healthy, not necessarily like manly men, right? But uh, physical education is a part of what it means to, to create subjects um, who are going to be not only intellectually curious, uh, but physically capable of carrying out various uh, tasks and, and uh, working toward inquiry. And then there's the social bonds that are fostered by the school system. Um, and all of this kind of comes together, and suddenly you have a bunch of people who are looking for ways to kind of get together and interact, and what do you know, cricket clubs are really great for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, beyond that... Um, I just have, yeah, so, so, and, and yeah, and Michael's saying that we are skipping like 10 chapters mm-hmm. because, uh, and you were talking about WG, there is a whole section on WG that's three chapters long and that's actually kind of a big chunk of the book. It's like 60 pages or something. Right. Um, so if you really care about like the prehistory of cricket and why that matters, this is great. This is awesome. Like historical argument. It doesn't, but it doesn't really, it's not really a part of the broader argument of the book. Mm-hmm. It feels like a little sub book that's inside of it. But yeah, the, um, the chapter I find interesting is chapter 16, the what is art book yes. or, or chapter. And this is him doing like aesthetic analysis of cricket. I mean, he, he has said more than one time in the book so far that like individual moves matter. And the, the mark of a truly great cricket player is someone who... Um, will hit a ball or make a move in a way that no one else can and no one else has before. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what he calls virtuoso play. Um, and so that, that's what he says, right? Like if there's the, within this rule set, if there's the ability for an individual human agnostic of, of anything else they're doing to create true novelty, right? Like aesthetic novelty in this world, then it then it is more elevated than like, I don't know, some other activity. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and so is... then therefore it's art. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, and I think so. One of the things this is this is uh, the chapter actually where I was like, "Oh, cricket is a MOBA," Um, Mm -hmm. because and so I will unpack this. um, Cricket is a MOBA because I find them both incomprehensible. (laughs) That is actually that's a joke, but it's actually partly true. So one Mm -hmm. of the things that is fascinating about the cricket history that I get in this book um, is. Cricket gets changed in the weirdest damn ways. Like, there are things that happen... Um, hold on, I want to... <laughs> I want to read this sentence. Uh, this is in one of the chapters about W.G. Grace. Um, this mm-hmm. is from page 150. Quote, Late in life, he met the googly and was said to be troubled by it. So that's a sentence. That's a sentence about cricket. Um <laughs> Late in life, he met the googly and was said to be troubled by it. However, what this means, I had to look this up. I couldn't just let it sit on its own, even though it's kind Uh of perfect, because it comes out of nowhere, right? He's, like, talking about Grace and his career and kind of things he did, and then he's just like, late in life, he met the googly. (laughs) Um, So the googly is a type of trick ball in cricket. Um, it's a uh-huh. it's a particular way of throwing the ball. And again and again throughout this book, uh, one of the things, and I don't know if like contemporary cricket like right now is is quite like this, um, but this story that gets told again and again is like someone came up with a way of throwing the ball that no one had ever done before. 
Yeah, or hitting it. That that's right. those are the big moments, right? Of like a way of cutting the ball or cause, right because at some point you could they invent the technique of rather than like hitting it in a normal way or just getting in front of it, you just smash your cricket bat into the dirt. And the force of hitting the ball in that way makes it do a particular kind of thing. Right, and it's so it's so weird because um, now, granted, right, I'm not like super deep into any other sports. Uh, but like I, I know some things about basketball and I know some things about baseball and football. Um, and I do not have the sense that like in, in the history of basketball, at some point, some player like figured out an entirely new way of dribbling um, <laughs> that completely upended the game for a generation. Because this is what seems to be happening in cricket. And the reason that I compare it to a MOBA um, is because uh so a moba is kind of similar in the sense that it has an arena right it has uh, a a particular sort of space and you can move within that space in certain ways and there are certain goals things you want to touch things you want to destroy whatever um this is very similar to cricket uh not just because it has a pitch but because uh cricket is weird because it has sort of like the central pitch and then there's the field around it and there are like 20 different positions you could play once you get out of the actual pitch right there are, mm -hmm. there are all of these weird little like things that are individual positions but that can be played by multiple people at the same time um and so you have basically what is this space um and there is like enough variety of actors within that space that there is still kind of weird emergent uh, ways of playing the game. So I think of, you know, like MOBAs specifically as they come out of um, a particular way of modding World of Warcraft or not World of Warcraft, but um, Warcraft 3. Mm -hmm. um, and so we get like the birth of Dota. Um, but then uh, even most recently, right, we have uh, Auto Chess, which is like a mod of a mod uh like sort of almost different uh ways of realizing that bodies or these actors can move through space and have effects on that space um that just seems like i don't feel like that happens in in a lot of other sports i may be wrong right but the, it's just notable to me that uh the history of cricket is like and then at some point someone figured out how to hit the ball <laughs> right like people had been hitting the ball before but then this guy came in and he hit the ball on a way that no one had ever hit it before and then for the next five years everyone was hitting the ball that way yeah i mean i think part of it has to do with um the ability for the innovation to spread very quickly mm -hmm. so so things become much uh, the game changes radically for shorter amounts of time because the game can adapt to it like i i, I get the sense in 19th century cricket you might be able to like do something in in Britain and then go play cricket around the world and not interact with anyone who has seen what you did before. They might have mm -hmm. heard of it, but they don't know like how you hit the ball really, right? And right. and you know, based on the way that James writes this book, our ability to describe cricket in text is bad. It's really like, bad. Like, it's just impossible to describe just because of the amount of things that are going on. Much like if you try to read a, a like a break, you know, a moment by moment of a MOBA, very similar, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, maybe even the language is better there. Um, but so I wonder if that's it too, right? I mean, I think of Magic the Gathering, which um, a little bit of a different game, but very similar to what you're describing of like 
there are all these cards. Those cards have various specific uses, but you're making 60 card decks with a 15 card sideboard, and there are all these formats that have thousands of cards in them. And so the ability to morph decks and change them um, when they meet one another and in the design phase too, they're, they're very wide, right? It's, it's a hard mm-hmm. game to model. In fact, um, you know, it's an unsolvable game, apparently, um, mm-hmm. in, in that it can't be hard solved, which is cool. But uh, that's, that's all to say, so like at a, at a tournament, you know, in the late 90s, you might be able to play a deck uh, and then go to a bunch of different tournaments and no one else even knows about your deck, right? No one knows your deck list. They have an idea mm-hmm. of what you're playing. Maybe a little bit earlier is more appropriate for that. But there, there was a world in which um, your innovation really could be innovated, innovated for like a full year, even with the nascent early internet. Um, whereas now, the metagame, if, if you did really well at a tournament on a Friday and you did super, super, super well, um, the metagame can adapt to you by Sunday um, in mm-hmm. a substantial way. So I think maybe speed is part of it too. Um, you know, I think also about like Steph Curry and the three-point shot, like, four years ago or whatever how that how that really did seem to change the way that people had to play the game and now he's just like a normal player um yeah that's true and i don't think that has anything to do with like his abilities or maybe it does but i think it mostly has to do with like the composition of teams and how they've learned how to play him as part of the game as opposed to the other thing Mm um but yeah i don't know i honestly don't know either right mm -hmm. um but this is all to say uh that you know talking about sort of is cricket art um well james is going to say yes right it's a it is it is an art um and i think that uh that way of seeing the the diversity of possibility um in in all of these movements is something that is really key to how to the way that he understands cricket as art and i think it you know if we just want to like extract something out and look at video games i feel like the way that we talk about esports or mobas um seems the maybe the closest kind of connection to draw there um because as he says uh this is page 201 um the the cricket player uh extracts the significance of movements just as in rendering tactile values the artist extracts the corporal significance of objects um, yeah, he's talking. This is right after a conversation about Michelangelo's line, yes. right? And, and the thing that like makes Michelangelo a important, you know, sculptor, painter, artist. Period is that the way that he conceives of the line and how it bounds the object that that is being depicted. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, in the same way that art, in this kind of understanding, is about. Um, in some way uh bouncing off of the material existence of something or the emotional existence of something right of being able to um represent uh visually it almost in a in a way that you can feel that this thing is corporal right um its significance uh that in art uh, is comparable to the thing in cricket where someone manages to have just the right kind of pose and just the right angle on their bat to do again and again um, this really, you know, great technique, right? And like people can see it and they can see that technique and appreciate it because again, right, it's basically this, everyone has agreed to like stand in this space and move in particular ways and everyone is still sort of figuring out like what are the best ways to move or like strategically like based on how other people are moving how am i going to move 
Yeah, is it? Er, it's earlier in the book where he talks about it. Um, I, I don't remember who it is. Is his grandfather where he's talking about the engines? Yes, the engine driver. Yes, nope, that's his grandfather. Um, so, so I, I did not think about the uh, alignment of these two things until you're bringing it up here, right? But he tells this story earlier about his grandfather who was like a train driver for the the country, right? Like he's mm-hmm. he's I, I believe so. He's employed by Trinidad as a nation. Um, and so basically he says that, you know, Trinidad is based on these sugarcane plantations. Um, and the way that sugarcane operates is that as soon as you cut it, like as, as a crop, as soon as you cut it, you need to squash it to get all the sugar juice out or whatever. Um, because uh, the longer you wait in between the, uh, the, I guess the more time it has to get hard or something. I, mm-hmm. I don't really know. But I mean, the point is like anyway. the quality of the sugar degrades, right? It's bad for exactly. the crop. Yeah, you get less sugar juice. Um, and so he says that So the, the whole life of the island is organized around these engines uh, and these um, like squishing machines in that um, if, if you're cutting too early, if you're cutting and you're waiting too long, that means you get less sugar juice. So if the engine ever breaks down, you have to immediately have a work stoppage across everywhere that depends on that this grinding machine because if you don't have the work stoppage, then you're wasting sugar cane product. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so anytime an engine goes down, um, or, or you know, the motor for one of these um, crushing machines, all of the engineers show up, and they all have to try to fix it to do it. And he, and he tells a story about how his his grandfather's the train driver, he's the conductor, he's he's over this big important machine, big engine for the um, for for the country. And apparently one of the bigger plantation crushing machines goes down and they go get everyone. They go get all these. I think the uh, engineers are all Irish for some reason, which yes. is interesting. Um, so they go get all these engineers and no one can figure it out. No one can figure it out. No one can figure it out. So they finally, in a moment of desperation, they send the plantation owner's carriage for his grandfather. Um, because, you know, he's a guy who knows engines because he runs the train. And so, and I think in the past there. he had worked on the machines like he, yes like the the train thing i think was an upgrade for him yeah he had worked his way up to being the train conductor right um and so he so he goes there and it's all these people standing around it's like dozens of people standing around none of them can figure it out and this is their job is being this thing and so he gets there and he says i'll go in it i'll go do it i'll go do i'll go try to fix the engine but no one else can go in with me you know no no one gets to watch me work on it mm-hmm. and so the in in his desperation the plantation owner is like okay fine whatever like go fix it uh, his grandfather goes in and he comes back out a few minutes later he says all right try it now and it turns right on mm-hmm. like it works um and so they said well how did you do it and he says well i'm, I'm not gonna tell you <laughs> and he never told anybody right ever like does not even tell james when he tells him this story <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is, you know, 40 years later or something like that, right? Yeah. It's a substantial amount of time later. Um, and I forget what his exactly, I wish I had the exact quotation, but he says something to the effect of like, you know, James asks him, why did you never tell anyone or why won't you tell me? And he says, uh, uh, he said, uh, why did you do it? Um, he said what I had never heard before. Um, they were white men with all their uh, M-I-C-E like mice i don't know why these are uh, being treated as like uh um 
acronyms, but MI... They might, they might be degree names, right? They might be. With all their M-I-C-E and R-I-C-E and all their big degrees, and it was their business to fix it. I had to fix it for them. Why should I tell them? It's just, um, like, this amazing thing, right? But this, I think, is, you know... This story is illustrative of the same thing here in the end, right? Of that there is a a mode that is partially in you, right, as someone who interacts with cricket, and is partially through, produced through discipline, like strong discipline in relationship to the the field that you're you're in, right, or the the kind of context or relations around you, and it that particular mixture can't be replicated, right, mm-hmm. and it and it is more artful. I mean, I think that he thinks. I think that if, you know, we could ask CLR James, right, it was the moment of fixing that engine. Was that art? I think he would say yes. Yeah. Uh, I just, I really like that. I like that story a lot. Yeah, no, it's it's a good story. Um, yeah, so uh, that's, oh, well, that's part of why cricket is art. And here's the other reason why cricket is art. We mentioned this uh, because of drama. Yes, yeah, sorry, I, we skipped right to it, but yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, I'm very curious about your opinions on this. So he uh, says that basically cricket is the drama of a society. Right, uh, and it's it's fascinating because it's not just like any drama, he, he specifically compares it to classical tragedy. Um, mm-hmm. And so part of what we need to get on board to understand here is, uh, earlier I mentioned that he talks about uh, ancient Greeks and the Olympic Games, um, and he sort of he's reacting to what I, what I get the sense of is, is uh, a kind of tendency among people in this time, like his contemporaries, writers, um, to think that the Olympic games were themselves somehow harbingers of like the, the democratic turn in Greek politics. Um, Democratic there in scare quotes, of course, because it's always like got some, got some uh, divisions within it. Uh, But the movement to like, you know, uh, Athenian democracy or something like that. Um, there's apparently this kind of historical idea that, like, the games themselves were uh, sort of gestures toward a, a kind of broad popular appeal that, um, in time, brought about kind of respect for common people's opinions and so on and so forth, whatever. Um, James says that this isn't true, right? James says that the the Olympics uh, historically were... A, a function of the the Greek aristocracy, um, and it is in fact the sort of turn toward classical drama and uh, tragedy that we get the birth of um, kind of modern democracy or like something like modern democracy and something like a modern city state, because uh, it is not just the the people who have trained um to do these various games right we are seeing these stories of individuals so and if you're familiar with greek tragedy um then of course you know this but in case you're not greek tragedies are always about like individuals positioned within a state um like a uh you know with within athens or what have you and something happens where uh they're their duty gets divided, right? Their duty to their family gets cast against their duty to their uh, nation state um, or something along those lines. Yeah, so, so, you know, a good example, like the classic one, right? It's Antigone, you know, yes. between Creon, who is the state, and then the the desire to bury her brother from the battlefield. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's is it your familiar, familial connection or is it the state apparatus that you have the most loyalty to? Right. So, um, 
so James is kind of advocating for this as really the the true turn toward uh, democratic thinking in in the ancient world, um, because it like the drama allows uh, the spectators to understand themselves as subjects of a state, right? As as subjects who have like divided duties uh, between family and state, or something like that. Um, so then he says that cricket is the contemporary version of Greek tragedy because uh, when the... So the way cricket works, the way that uh, the two teams work is that uh, they're... One way of, uh, I guess, understanding it would be like uh, in, in, in baseball, there is the team that's at bat and then there's the team that's playing the field. Um, and when in cricket, when you are batting, uh, you are the... Per, like, you are your team. Right, you are the only person on your team who is really playing on the field. Everyone else on the field uh, is someone from the opposing team, and so for the spectators, and this is what's really important for James, is uh, to really understand this as art. You have to understand uh, art as a thing that people watch or enjoy or take part in. Um, for spectators watching this one person who becomes who becomes sort of distilled into a representative of their team. Um, going against, going up against everyone else on the other team, um, mm -hmm. is like the new Greek tragedy, right? Like, uh, not necessarily like it's going to be a tragedy, right? But it's the same kind of um, mechanism whereby an audience uh, recognizes um, a kind of uh, social formation of of subjectivity and like sort of concomitant. Uh, uh, like ethical and like professional responsibilities or something like that to put it to put yeah, it in I, a way <laughs> yeah and i think what's a little bit tricky here too is i think that i don't think he would think that all fans recognize that but mm -hmm. but someone in a like a relatively privileged position like he is in the sense of he's a critic who is evaluating the whole thing and then experiencing it you know over and over again reading about it blah 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 um that the that this whole book builds to this claim, I think, because he's saying, you know, uh, some people in Trinidad enjoy one British team because there's a Trinidadian player on that team. And so they have all this social and emotional investment in that team because of that one person. Um, but people for who that that uh, British team is local for, they care about the whole thing. You know, um, mm -hmm. they care about Constantine. The locals near Constantine care about his whole team as much as they care about him, right? And so the all of these different things, these different ways that individual players or um, that sets of players fit into the world, um, they allow access. Cricket performs different duties for lots of different people all at one time, right? Mm -hmm. And as a critic, you can zoom out and see that, right? That that sometimes all of that those weird desires and all those weird interests in different players that actually gets dissolved and focused in on one other player right right um you know i might care more about the state-based character than than you do you know michael and whatever greek tragedy we're watching but in the moment due to the drama and due, due to the staging or whatever we might really care about antigone at this very moment mm -hmm. despite all of our, our wishes or whatever um and so, yeah, I think I think it's a compelling case. I mean, I think it's a very interesting claim. Does does it does it shake out for you as a uh, dramatist? Uh, I'm a dramatist. Oh, it's interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I would, I guess so, right? Um, I think I talked about this last episode with with Wazinga. Um, there, 
there's something interesting that is happening here uh where if you if you go into performance studies and like the history of drama um and i have probably talked about this before but uh, one of the problems for performance studies is that, historically speaking, it is really hard to pin down when drama as kind of a, a secular entertainment bubbles out of religious ritual. Um, yeah, if, if you want to hear like a long extended thing about this, this is the Gina Bloom episode that we did. Yes, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. you have a good long segment. That's not to cut you off. You should, you should continue and say this part. But also, there's a whole, if people are interested and this is your first episode... We have a whole other episode that's mm-hmm. dedicated just to this like set of concepts, right? Um, so yeah, uh, I guess I couldn't remember if I'd talked about that on the show before. So that's yeah, I a thing. So. That's a thing that happens in performance studies, and what is really fascinating to me about what's happening here is that we get the exact same kind of thing for games, um, like mm-hmm. sports or what have you. In that, um, he is positing. James is positing that games are a kind of supersession of uh, Greek tragedy, which was itself a kind of supersession of, like, the Olympic Games, which at its very bottom was a kind of um, ritualized, uh, like, you know, church and state are not divided here, right? Um, But a a ritualized civic and religious um, kind of event, right? Uh, bringing all of these different people together from the area uh, in in the shadow of Mount Olympus to play these games in tribute to the gods. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's very interesting to me in that respect that we can see kind of a similar parallelism of um, uh, the the way that th- this contemporary, I guess, you know, entertainment technology essentially um, comes out of a kind of evacuated um, religious ritual framework. Well, do I have additional things to say about the end of this book here? Um, well, uh, let's see. Uh, I don't think so in particular. There is um, one other, well, there are a couple more chapters, but they're all kind of... Uh, just sort of reflective by this point um yeah do you have any anything else to say about them um the la- his no. last chapter is like hey kids don't throw games well don't right he just has like that little he has he basically says like i'm, I'm hoping that like someone people who read this book um will be less inclined to uh do what those f- basketball players did and uh, those damn american hooligans right uh because he he is he's invested in um not necessarily like the sanctity of the play but like he thinks pl- like the, these games and the ways that we play them should be respected yeah 100 um, percent um so yeah, I think it's a complicated book. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's he never really re- like tries to reconcile those two things. He just points to the problem of that of mm-hmm. like, oh, I care really a lot about the form and structure of this thing, but also there's all the ways that that form and structure like uh, empowers and also hurts people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, well, that's just how it is. Um, so I think there's a lot of places to like interact with this book and talk back to it to some degree. But I also think that as a book, it really, especially the earlier game studies we've been reading, um, it it soundly answers some of those claims and um what is interesting to me is, is that it kind of demonstrates that many of the claims of Kawar or Huizinga, and i said this earlier but it demonstrates that a lot of those claims are kind of received opinion mm-hmm. like they're it's not as if these are like 
new claims about the ways that games work, these are really just like distillations of societal belief at the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, if when we cite those books, I don't know if we say that as often as maybe we should or, or, or bring up that context that like, you know, that this narrative about the Greeks, for example, that you just kind of walked us through uh, around tragedy and, and games and the way that, that games interacted with Greek society, that was just kind of like some things people believed um, right. <laughs> they're not produced through rigorous study, right? Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a cultural narrative. And it's a very particular cultural narrative. And if we give that a lot of weight without looking at its context, um, we are smuggling in a lot of cultural belief uh, and a lot of ideology where we think that we are um, bringing in like objective fact or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I don't know. It's just useful. I think it's a good book. I like it a lot. Obviously, you know, I've made that case. Did, Michael, do you find it helpful? Yes, no, I thought it was uh, a really good book. I mean, I, you know, I the the, cric- the parts that were straight-up cricket biography really kind of um, slid over me, but the earlier parts and the later parts I, I find very, very, very cool. And as I said, like, I think this book is very well-written. Like, uh, James is a very, like, intriguing prose stylist. Um, he's got a... He, as I, he, he writes a little bit like a Victorian, um, but yeah. not so much that... Uh, it feels like uh, an affectation and in fact he very often feels aware of his own stylistic idiosyncrasy yeah he who he more than we have um, talked through he pokes fun at himself maybe a little bit more than uh, which, which is fun too but uh, yeah I'm going to be teaching this book in the fall Ooh, um, nice. in, in a game design course so I'm very curious how it goes I'll, I will report back oh, and let people do. know how it goes uh but yeah i think like like i said before i think that if you're teaching a game studies course you can excerpt those first three chapters and maybe this uh the chapter 16 what is art you know it's, it's a good 50 pages or so and i think that you could have a very robust and good discussion um with students about that that would give them some really productive i think pushback against some of the other texts that we've read um and would set them up to do some nice comparative readings between the two, or even just to, to, to read this in conjunction with some more recent work and, and think about, you know, what is James getting at that even contemporary scholarship doesn't get at? And what does contemporary scholarship demonstrate that James, you know, doesn't think about? So I find it really intellectually invigorating as a book. Um, Michael, do we have a sense of what we're going to read next? Yes, so uh, the next book that I would like us to read is Wordplay and the Discourse of Video Games uh, by Christopher A. Paul. Okay, we're going to do it. Okay. I'm excited Uh, about it. I've read a big chunk of, uh, I've not read that book, but I've read a big chunk of his more recent book about toxicity in play. Um, Oh, okay. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, Yeah, no, I just figured, um, I was thinking of like, what what are some threads that we've had in earlier episodes that we haven't necessarily like followed through in some ways and um i'm thinking like this follow like the the paul book follows on from uh uh the insulin book and i think um uh hamlet on the hollow deck in many ways because we're going back to my field right like how do people who are interested in language and literature and words end up talking about games and what does that mean yeah, that sounds it sounds good. Very interested in it. Um, we do need to, to follow up, too, because we talked about this last episode, and we're very open for suggestions on this, so please let us know. But we would love to do a book on, like, the video game violence debates. I'm pretty sure I left that in at the, mm-hmm. last, epi- the, end of the last episode when we talked about it. So if you have a good book from, like, the 90s or even the early 2000s that are that's just in there throwing bows about video games and violence, um, I think we'd be very interested in a suggestion for that so please let us know 
Michael, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on twitter.com at sign Warren is dead. Um, you got anything to plug? I not at the moment. I'm going to have some academic stuff, but I'm probably going. We're going to have some more episodes by the time that actually publishes. So, <laughs> okay. Well, well, we'll be ready for it. You can find me on Twitter, twittercom Um If you like the show, you can follow Range Touch to get updates about it. Range Touch, of course, is the network that this show is a part of. At Range Touch on Twitter. Um, you can go to rangetouch.com to learn more about the show and you can get a list of episodes there some other stuff that might be interesting youtube.com slash rangetouch for videos that I've made uh, and, and that various range touch products have made, a lot of streams, I'm working on my Final Fantasy 7 Let's Play that I'm playing every Thursday the stream archive goes up that's very fun, if you like the kind of stuff we do on this show, the kind of thinking about games uh, that we do the Final Fantasy 7 stream is really cool because it's a lot of people who listen to this show or other range touch stuff and they all get in the chat and we talk and interpret and and you know sometimes it's silly and sometimes it's not and, and we have a good discussion about Final Fantasy 7 for a few hours um, so if you if you like this but want to talk about the games and not the theory then you can come on by and do that that's twitch.tv slash ranged touch oh I guess and, uh, uh-huh. one other thing if you have any uh like touching on the the request for book recommendations i have access to the to the podcast email again so whoa. if you have those yeah woo so Do we have if, any questions if you have from the past five yeah, months? if you have oh i think we just like oh, sorry, talked over each other a whole bunch yeah um, yeah sorry about that <clears throat> yeah no so if you have uh book recommendations on the violence debate or if you have questions for us uh please write us at game studies study buddies at gmail.com and in fact there's a question in there right now but i think we're running short on time so we can answer it later we, we can answer right now if it's a short one can we answer sorry, it in five you cut minutes out again oh sorry uh we cannot answer it in five minutes because it is from ben abraham um <laughs> and it is several paragraphs long dang it bean yeah. Right. Well, we'll get into it next time. Yes. No. Uh, yeah. Keep your keep your ears open, Ben. We'll answer your question next time. Your question that you sent us in March. We'll get. We got to it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will see you next month. Uh, oh, and of course, if you like the show, you can always uh, check us out on Patreon. Go down to the link below this, wherever you're listening to it, and you can uh, support us for as little as five dollars a month, or as little as one dollar a month. $3 a month gets you access to our notes, and $5 a month gets you access to another podcast that Range Touch puts out. It's just like free will and talking times. It's fun. Um, but beyond that, uh, we will see you next time. Later. <laughs>